and I believe we were still a family of three instead of a family of four, we got just a little taste, a little tiny taste of what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph that first Christmas morning there. See, that year my brother, who lived nearby us in California, invited us to go up to his in-law's cottage for Christmas break for a little while. It's up in the mountains, a little cabin up in the mountains. And so the plan was they were going to spend Christmas Day with her family, and then Christmas night, Christmas evening, we'd drive up to the mountains and spend a few days up at the, at the little cabin. Uh, we'd simply stop for dinner on the road somewhere along the way that night and be all set that, that evening. It was a beautiful drive up the side of the mountains in California, the, the moon glistening off the snow, which is really cool when you're in California, not kind of drudgery when you're here and you have snow all the time, right? And we realized we were going to have a problem when we, the last little town came up and we decided that's where we'd stop for dinner. We pulled into town and like the whole place was pitch black. And I realized that, that we were going to be in trouble when, when KFC wasn't open and Subway wasn't open, and Taco Bell wasn't open, Round Table Pizza, good, good staple in California, wasn't open, even McDonald's. You know you're in trouble when McDonald's isn't open. So we had to go to Plan B. And Plan B wasn't all that difficult. Plan B was just convincing the kids of the, of the crew that they can hold on a little while longer until we got to our destination, that they weren't going to starve to death, and we'll get food when we get there. Plan B worked out just fine. The problem for Mary and Joseph was they didn't have a plan B set up when they arrived in Bethlehem, right? They, and they weren't looking for dinner. They were looking for a place to stay. So, so Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem looking for a place to stay. When everything is booked, that's a much bigger deal than having to hold on for dinner for another hour or two. I can imagine on the trip down, Mary and Joseph, they had days of walking, right? That if she was typical, Mary was probably a little anxious about where are they going to stay, right? Kind of bugging Joseph. I can't believe you didn't make reservations, right? And Joseph, if he's typical, saying, it'll be fine. What are you worrying about? It'll be fine. There's going to be something, and certainly someone will take us in. Don't worry, Mary. Of course, Mary was right as women usually are, right? Joseph should have been worried. Listen to the story again. It's an old story, but hear it again from Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, for those of you who have been around the Bible for a long time, for those of you who have heard this story often, some of those last words probably sounded different to you, right? When, when I memorized this story back in grade school, right, 
the, the words I memorized but that was that they placed Jesus in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, right? In the inn. And I could picture the scene just like we saw up here this morning. Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem expecting to find a room in the local hotel, one of the many that are there, right? And instead they find that all the rooms are full. There's no vacancy in any of Bethlehem's inns. With the crowds that are all traveling for the census, all the rooms are full. And yet this one innkeeper, right? Maybe curmudgeonly as he was, his heart softens just enough to make room for Mary, to make room for Joseph. He cleans out, he walks out back to the barn, right? And, and he cleans out the stall and finds a place. So the animals are moved, the stall is clean, fresh hay is put in. And in the barn, a home is made for this young couple. And from the barn, you know the rest of the story, right? Jesus is born, the angels point the way, the shepherds come to visit, and that first Christmas morning dawns, and it's a pleasant picture of an unexpectedly cozy Christmas night. Unfortunately, Jesus' arrival into our world probably wasn't nearly as quaint, nearly as cozy as we imagined it to be. Right? Our 21st century assumptions just don't mesh with first century reality. Right? Because when we read the word in, in our minds we think of Holiday Inn. We think of Days Inn. We think of Hilton. Right? We think of all those nice hotels, a, a place where, where, where someone's in the business of providing temporary lodging for these weary travelers who've been driving all day long or walking all day long, and they just need a place to stay with a clean, comfortable room, a place to park your donkey for the night, maybe even a buffet breakfast in the morning if, it's, if the deal is just right. That's what we picture. But both first century culture and the biblical language would argue against our assumptions. Okay, first of all, you need to know that widespread, widespread travel was not common in the first century. People didn't take vacations. People just, just didn't go for a week-long walk hundreds of miles away to different cities. They didn't do it. So there wasn't this large market for hotels like we have in our culture. And most cities wouldn't even have a hotel if it's a small city. Some of your big cities like Jerusalem would, but, but not a town like Bethlehem. Right? Jerusalem would have them probably because we know the one reason people did travel. They traveled to Jerusalem for, for the different annual feasts throughout the year, right? But even then, on those days, on those weeks when huge numbers of people would converge on Jerusalem for the Passover, even then, they didn't travel alone. Right, for these days-long journeys, they would travel in large groups of family and, and neighbors would gather together. And when night came, they didn't look for a hotel. We know that when evening came, they simply stopped off the side of the road, found a place under the stars to lay down for the night. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't look for a hotel mostly. There's just too many people. They would spend the day in Jerusalem, and when the evening came, they'd walk outside of town again and find a place to sleep out under the stars, maybe with a temporary lodging like a tent. But that's the most they would do. So they didn't do hotels. They were campers. There was a good argument for you camping people there. Jesus probably camped along with his family. He didn't do hotels. The point is Mary and Joseph were not traveling for these three days, assuming that 
there would be room in an inn for them when they arrived. See, in the first century, for those rare times when somebody did have to travel, the normal thing was to stay with an acquaintance, with a relative, with a friend, even a friend of a friend. See, this was a culture that highly valued hospitality. If you had any connection to the person at all, you didn't say no to somebody needing a place to stay for the night. It's different than our culture, right? We aren't familiar with that kind of hospitality. We value privacy, right? We value the privacy of our own homes. Very few people get into our homes. They didn't value privacy. They valued hospitality. And we know that Joseph had relatives in Bethlehem. He was going there because of the census, right? He was going there because this was his family's hometown, so certainly there were multiple family members, even if there were shirt-tailed relatives, still there in Bethlehem. And so he would fully expect that he could stay in their home with them, not a hotel. And so when, when he knocked on the door, the person answering the other side of the door would have been a relative, not a complete stranger. So that's why the new wording that we heard this morning is so much better, right? It says that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no guest room available to him. Quick Greek lesson. Okay, two words to learn in Greek. The word that Luke uses here for guest room is the word katalima, katalima. It's used here in Luke, it's used here, and it's also used in Luke chapter 7, and it's also in Mark 14, okay? And both of, those, both of those other references to this word is when Jesus sends his disciples to prepare the Passover, right? He sends them to prepare the Passover for, for the 13 of them. And in both of those passages, Catalima is not translated as in. He doesn't say go to an inn and prepare the Passover. Instead, the disciples are, go, are sent to go ask somebody about their guest room. They're both translated as guest room. You see, it was a room that, that people put in their homes to host relatives. That's how hospitable they were. The typical house had an extra room off to the side. And so when a relative stopped by, there's a place for them to stay. Or maybe when, when your son first gets married to his new wife and they don't have the, the money to afford a house, they stay in that guest room. It's a place for hospitality, reserved for the visiting relative. If Luke wanted to specify an inn, like a hotel, he would have used the word pandochian, right? He did that in Luke chapter 10. Remember the story of, of the Good Samaritan? He gets beat up by the side of the road, and the Good Samaritan puts him on his donkey and takes him to a pandochian, an inn, a place where a traveler finds rest for the night. So the language tells us that it wasn't a hotel that Joseph stopped at at all. It was probably multiple homes of relatives asking, is your guest room open? Is your guest room available to me and my pregnant wife, Mary? But all the guest rooms of all of his relatives were full, which really isn't that surprising, right? 
There were all kinds of relatives moving around the country at that time. And at each door Joseph knocked at, there was probably already a family in that guest room over here. So much of their disappointment, and probably Mary's prediction, after their 100-mile journey over the course of a week, nine months pregnant, there wasn't room for them. And here's where our speculation kind of gives this innkeeper or this homeowner this relative of Joseph's a bad reputation, right? We mostly make him out to be a little bit of a villain, right? Curmudgeonly kind of villain here for relegating Mary and Joseph out to the barn, right? I mean, you couldn't find anything, and you stuck them out in a barn with the animals? We, we kind of chastise him for not making room for Jesus. But that might have been exactly what he did. If you read it right and you... And and you know first century culture. See, maybe this relative isn't such a villain after all. I told you about their house. Over on this side, there'd be a guest room built into the house. Well, on the other side of the typical house of that era, on this side of the common living area, was a stable as part of the house. The stables usually weren't distant barns out back. It was usually a part of the house. It was designed so that, so that you had this common living area where everybody lives. You have the guest room over there. And then you usually have a four-foot drop to a lower level, which was the stable. It keeps the animals from coming into the house. And, and beyond this four-foot drop, right, on this main level, often a manger was dug right into the floor there. So your donkey sticks his head right up onto the floor of your house to get his dinner. So could it be, could it be that this relative had a stable right there as part of his house, not out in a cave somewhere, not out in a distant barn far away from the house, but there's a good chance that highly valuing hospitality he may have welcomed Mary and Joseph right into his home and offered the best that he could, which was a corner of the stable here. Since the guest room over here was unavailable, this side is the best he could offer. At least there would be a roof over their heads. At least there would be family, more family than, than normal, surrounding them in this house with them. And it could be that into this feed trough, right in the middle of the action of a house, and a home. Baby Jesus was laid. A little bit different picture than what we usually assume. But even with that picture, the humbleness of Jesus' arrival still remains, doesn't it? It's still a stable that they're living in. For the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, there's still the smell of animals all around. There's still the dirt of animals instead of a sterile ho a hospital room somewhere. There's still, it may be in the middle of the floor of a house, but it's still a feed trough that a baby is being laid in. There's still the humility of being, being relegated to sharing space with the donkeys and the cows. But maybe it isn't quite as extraordinary as he so longed, so long believed it to be. And maybe that's exactly the point God was trying to make here, right? It, it was into an ordinary house in Bethlehem, 
on an ordinary street, on an ordinary night, that this baby was born. Right? On the outside, at least, there's nothing unusual about the birth of this baby. This innkeeper relative didn't turn his back on Mary and Joseph. He offered them hospitality as one would expect, the best that he was able. And if the angels hadn't told the shepherds that something special was going on that night, no one would have thought twice about that evening, right? Ordinary night. Doesn't that seem like just the way that God would have wanted it? Right from the very beginning, Jesus is one of us. He enters this world the same way anyone in that day would identify with. And like thousands of babies before him and thousands of babies after, he's born in a house in a village street in Palestine. It's as ordinary of a situation as can be. The extraordinary part isn't, isn't the details and events that surround it. The extraordinary part of that night that we celebrate today is who was being born that night. What was so extraordinary was that God was taking on humanity, not that it was in the barn. What was so extraordinary is that God is now with us in a way he had never been with us before. Not that the guest room was full. What was so extraordinary was who was laying in this manger, not the manger itself. Now, I'm not sure our finite minds can comprehend the gravity of this moment that we celebrate today. God has been born Right, This God, the eternal one beyond time, is now bound by time. This God, who is not bound by space, but is everywhere present, now, now is, is bound by this world, now is nowhere present except to this peasant home in Bethlehem. This God, the mighty one, with all power, right, the power to create all, is now wrapped up tightly in rage and can't even pull his arms from his side. He can't even sit up straight. He can't even hold his head up. This God is now part of the world, entering it just like any other child. And this God is now a part of your life and my life. Whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, he is. Because Jesus arrived on Christmas and because he, he died on Good Friday and because he rose again on Easter and because he sent his Holy Spirit to this world, to you and me on Pentecost, we now have the opportunity to receive him or reject him just like that relative standing at the door. Right Through the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus comes today to your heart. He comes today to your life. And he's looking for a place to call home. He's looking for a heart that's open to him. He's looking for a life that will be lived for him. He's looking for someplace 
someone where he can restore this relationship with the God of the universe who is deeply in love with them. And if this Christmas, on this day, he shows up through all the tinsel, through all the parties, if he shows up at the door of your heart, at the door of your life, and he knocks on the door, and he finds that there's no room, if he finds that you and I value privacy over hospitality, if he finds the door to our hearts and our lives locked and the lights turned off, know that there is no plan B this time. There is no plan B. There is no other hope for finding fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction in your life. There is no other hope for finding the wholeness and peace that comes from true forgiveness. There is no other hope for finding assurance for today and for your eternal destination. Jesus entering into your heart Finding an open door into your life is plan A, and there is no plan B. And sadly, sadly, this world for centuries now has proved the Apostle John right. See, in John's nativity poem, he too announces the arrival of Jesus, the light of the world, but he sadly acknowledges that most of this world, when Jesus comes and knocks, most of this world won't know how to receive him. Right? John writes this. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. And isn't that the story of today? The Holy Spirit of God is knocking. He's knocking on hearts. He's knocking on lives. Your heart, mine. Saying, is there room for me? Is there room for me to be born in you? And how often doesn't he find the door locked? How often doesn't he hear from the other side, sorry, there's no room here. Move along. How often doesn't he find the lights turned off and there's no room? You know, when you think about Jesus' birth, when you think about it today with your family, Maybe what's so extraordinary about this birth is just how ordinary it was. Right? The arrival of God himself, the arrival of this baby named Jesus was so ordinary, it was ordinary enough for you and I to dare step into his presence. It was ordinary enough for you and I to feel comfortable stepping into the presence of God himself. It was ordinary enough for you and I to be able to receive him, to receive his love, to receive his grace. 
despite our unworthiness, despite our sinfulness and our guilt. Right? It's Jesus' transforming power and grace that changes the ordinary into the extraordinary. It's Jesus' transforming power and grace that can transform you and me from ordinary to extraordinary before God. So this morning, this morning you and I, we had the opportunity to receive him again, to open the door, to welcome him into your heart, to welcome him into your life, to welcome him into your home. Jesus says again, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. This Christmas, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And he offers you and he offers me the gift of himself. Receive it. Receive him today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, when the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. You crept in beside us and no one knew. Only the few who dared to believe that God might do something different. Will you do the same this Christmas, Lord? Will you come into the darkness of today's world, not the friendly darkness as we sleep and as we're rescued from tiredness, but the fearful darkness in which people have stopped believing that war will end, that fearful darkness in which people have stopped believing that food will come or that a government will change or that the church actually cares? Will you come into that darkness and do something different to save your people from death and despair? Will you come into the quietness of this city? Not the friendly quietness as when lovers hold hands, but the fearful silence when the phone has not rung and the letter has not come and the friendly voice no longer speaks when the doctor's silent face says it all. The silent face that Audrey Cortman is experiencing today without Jerry. Will you come into that darkness and do something different to embrace your people? And will you come into the dark corners and the quiet places of our lives? We ask this because the fullness we long for depends on being open and vulnerable to you like you were to us when you came, wearing nothing more than diapers and trusting human hands to hold their maker. Will you come into our lives if we open them to you and do something different? When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. You crept in beside us. Do the same this Christmas, Lord. Do the same this Christmas. Amen. Would you stand please with us?
On that first Christmas, Jesus snuck on in. He quietly came. 